So this morning we continue our series in, uh, as we look at the fruit of the Spirit. And another way we could describe the fruits of the Spirit, or the fruit of the Spirit rather, would be the marks of a supernaturally changed heart. Because the fruit of the Spirit is the character of Jesus Christ coming into our life. It's the character of Jesus Christ being wrought in our hearts, changing us from the inside out. See, we can all change through some kind of moral compulsion. The fear of being arrested can restrain me from doing harm to my neighbor. But moral compulsion can't make me love my neighbor. Only a heart change, a heart, a change from the very center of who we are can actually change us. And that's what it means to become a Christian. To become a Christian does not mean to change your behavior. To become a Christian requires conversion. It's not simply something that you add to your life, but it's the very center of who you are actually being converted and changed. It's what the Bible calls being born again. And at this rebirth, this new birth, your old heart is actually replaced with a new heart. Physically, no, but spiritually, yes. And at the core of this new heart, it means that you have a new set of affections. It means that you love new things. It means that you desire different and new things. And in turn, it means that you don't desire the things that you used to. So moral compulsion can restrain us from harming our neighbor, but only a new heart will make us love our neighbor. And that is what this series is all about. It's all about what our lives begin to look like when the Holy Spirit gives us a new heart in conversion and then works in our new heart to bring about the character of Jesus Christ in us. So far, this list appears in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to some churches, and he's describing what this looks like in their life, and he called it the fruit of the Spirit. And I think the image of fruit is helpful for us, because fruit is something that starts as a small sapling tree, and it grows into a mature tree, and fruit grows over time. And it's a good illustration of what our lives look like. Because at conversion, we do change. You do become that apple tree. But the fruit of that apple tree comes over a series and period of time. As the Holy Spirit works in your life and brings about this new character in your life, and over the course of your entire lifetime, this fruit of the Spirit begins to manifest itself and show itself in your life. Paul says things like love, joy, peace, patience. Last week we looked at kindness, and this week we look at goodness. What does it look like for there to be goodness, our lives to be marked by goodness? So we're going to be turning to the book of Micah, an Old Testament prophet, one of the book of the twelve, as it's been called. And we're going to look at what's been called the Micah Mandate or the goodness mandate. And that's found in Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. And right there in the begin- at the end there in verse 8, we will see that we are to love what is good. And then what is good is going to be described for us. So I'm going to read for us Micah chapter 6. 
verses 6 through 8. This is God's word. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Would you pray with me? Father, would you thank you for your word? Lord, we long to see the fruit of the Spirit manifest in our lives. We long to be changed, Father. And we believe that as your word is preached and communicated, your spirit goes forth and it confronts our heart. It challenges, it rebukes, it encourages, and it comforts. So we pray that would be so this morning, God. We ask, Lord, that our eyes would be fixed on Jesus Christ and that his character and his life would be manifest in our mortal bodies. We thank you, Lord, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So verse 6, point 1 is Micah's God. Point 1 is Micah's God. Verse 6 says this, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Right from the beginning here, you see that Micah's description of God is a God that's transcendent. He says he's a God on high. He's high and lifted up. He's different than Micah, as it were. And he's talking about wanting to come into his presence and bow before him. And he's saying, what shall I, with what shall I come before the Lord? He's asking the question, I need something in my hands in order to come before this God. And the reason for that must be because Micah's view of God is big and mighty. Reminds me, it's similar to this other description of God that Moses gives us in Exodus chapter 33. And in Exodus chapter 33, what has happened is Moses has already been given the Ten Commandments. He's already gone down and given them to the people. And he's preparing to send them out to the promised land. And Moses says this to God. And he said to him, Moses said to him, said to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. And in verse 30, chapter 33, verse 18, it says, and Moses said, please show me your glory. Moses is asking to see the glory of God. He's asking to see, which means the weightiness of God. Moses is asking for a glimpse into the divine nature. Moses is asking for a glimpse into the center of things. He's asking for a shot into what and who God is. Which leads me to a question. Do you long to see God like Moses did? Do you long to see him like Micah did. 
or put another way, do you find God useful or do you find him beautiful? Is he simply useful to you or do you find him beautiful within himself? You know, you can describe beauty. Here's a few definitions of beauty from a theological dictionary, one's from a philosophical dictionary. One says, a pleasure in an object without regard to its purpose. A pleasure in an object without regard to its purpose. Simply enjoying something for what it is. Or, a quality that is satisfying, excellent, and pleasurable to the soul. In the... uh, Great Awakening in the 1700s, Jonathan Edwards wrote a book called uh, Religious Affections. And the purpose of this book, Religious Affections, is Jonathan Edwards was a pastor in New England. And all these people were being radically converted by the hundreds and thousands of them. And so Jonathan Edwards as a pastor was asking, what are the signs of real conversion? How do you know that someone actually is born again? How do you know that someone actually isn't just having an emotional experience? They aren't just, you know, being one of the crowd. And as a pastor, it seemed like a really important question to him in his time. And the core of what he said is he said, true conversion or true religion, he called it, is found in religious affections. Is one's heart actually inclined towards God himself? In God just being God. Not simply in the things that God can give us, but simply is our heart enamored with God because he's simply beautiful and glorious and big and awesome. Do we come to God simply because of his beauty and his glory? Do we come to him just because of who he is? There's an aspect to God that theologians call God's aseity. It means God's himselfness. It means his independence from the world. It means his essence, just who he is. Maybe I can illustrate it like this. This last uh, month, my family, we took a camping trip down in central Oregon. And we took Highway 20 from I-5 down to Bend. I don't know if you've ever been on this road before. It's actually called like the over the, over the river and through the woods scenic byway. Who wouldn't want to drive on that? As you're coming over this Highway 20 though, you get towards the top of this peak and you can see Mount Jefferson. You can see Mount Bachelor. You can see Mount Washington. You can see Three Finger Jack. You can see the sisters as you're coming down to the pass into Bend. And then you drive from Sisters down into Bend and there's that flat prairie and you can look off to the south and you can see the three sisters in the backdrop underneath this this, this golden straw meadow. And when you drive by those things, they're just beautiful in and of themselves. There's no practical benefit to them except when you're driving by them and there's a sense of beauty and awe about them. And that's a 
mere shadow and glimpse of what it is to gaze upon the beauty and glory of God. To simply look at him and delight in him for who he actually is. Moses is saying, I want to see you face to face. I want to look into the center of your glory. It's like the psalmist says in Psalm 63, he says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Or Psalm 16, 11 says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. In your presence, in your face, literally. That's the essence of true religion, of religious affections, to long to be with God simply because he is God and he's big and he's beautiful and he's glorious. You know, a Pew study, Pew Research study came out this last January, <clears throat> and it was a little surprising, actually, because of polling Americans, it says only 3.1% of Americans are atheists, and only 4% are agnostic. That means that some 90% of Americans say they believe in God in some fashion, But how many believe in the God of the Bible as is seen here? Because this God that we are describing is the transcendent Lord of everything. It means that he has complete authority and rights over everything that he has made. It means that every part of your life belongs to him. Every thought, every deed, every desire belongs to him. But too often we see God as a grandpa of sorts. He's there when we need him, and he generally just stays out of the way. But Micah, Micah knows better than this. Micah knows the God of glory that Moses saw, and he desires to approach him. But he knows there's a great chasm between him and God. And he says, with what shall I come. So that's point one, Micah's God. Point two, Micah's propositions. He gives us two options at first. He says, shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? See, the burnt offering it was usually a voluntary act of worship and devotion to God. And Micah is asking, he's asking this very important question, can my devotion to God be sufficient for me to draw near to him? Can my devotion to God be the sufficient grounds for me to draw near to him? Or, Is your devotion to God grounds enough to draw near to him? And what's being suggested here by Micah is an outrageous, over-the-top suggestion. He says thousands of rams. I mean, he could have said 10,000 bottles of oil, and he would have been talking about millions and millions of dollars. 
but he says 10,000 rivers of oil. It's almost like he's saying, if I could give you everything in the world, would that be sufficient to draw near to you? Or let me ask you, on what basis do you draw near to God? In what ways does your own devotion to God give you the impression that you have grounds to come near? Was it the decision to homeschool? Was it the decision to have a large family? Does that give you more of a right to come near to God? The problem with coming to God on these grounds is always at least twofold. First, it puts God in your debt. If you can contribute to the reason that you are drawing near to God, then he somewhat, at least partially, owes you something. Because you're part of the equation. And when we are part of the equation, we think God owes us. So we make the decision, you make the decision, I make the decision to homeschool or have a large family or be self-employed or whatever it is. And then things don't go right, we shake our fist at God and say, God, you owe me. But don't you see that coming to God like this is not coming to him for his sheer beauty and glory. It's coming to God for his goods and benefits. You see, there's a deep hardness in the human heart that even if we are initially drawn to God by his beauty and glory, but then we think we contribute to the relationship through our own devotion, our sense of self-interest and self-entitlement will grow. And when the crisis strikes, whatever it is, you will know if you've loved God for God or if you've loved God for his money. When the crisis strikes, when you lose the job, when the kids don't turn out the way you thought, when the spouse leaves and you're devastated, there's a reasonable amount of distraughtness, right? But if you're utterly crushed, if you're just crushed to the ground, then it's indicative of where your heart was. You know if you contribute to coming into God's presence, and part of it is by your own effort, then there are limits on what he can ask of you. If you somehow contributed on your right to come into his presence, then there are limits on what he can actually ask of you. But... If the only way you can come into his presence is by sheer grace, having contributed nothing yourself, then there are no limits on what God can ask of you. But the second problem with Micah's answer, or his first proposition, is that it's just simply insufficient. A thousand rams and ten thousand rivers of oil pales in comparison to what's actually owed to him. Look, if... If he really is the ruler and he is the sovereign over all the earth, then we owe him for every second of breath that we have ever had. And it's impossible to pay it back. 
it's simply too late. So Micah's second proposal, verse 7. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? First he suggests a burnt offering, now he suggests a sin offering. Certainly, Micah knows that the presence of the Most High is the most holy of chambers. And he knows that he, as a sinful man, has no right to enter without some kind of sin offering. So he suggests something that may at first seem a bit gruesome to us. He says, what if I offered off my firstborn son? You have to understand that in a culture of primogeniture, where the firstborn son Uh, inherited the entire family estate. The firstborn son meant everything to the family. The entire estate, the entire family wealth went to the firstborn son. The entire family's existence and and, and subsistence and, and continuing to do so was absolutely contingent upon the firstborn son. The firstborn son, in effect, represented the whole family. The future of the family was on his shoulders. And so what Micah suggests to offer up as a sin offering is the most significant thing that he could offer. He's putting his entire family's future on the line, as it were. But the problem, like the first suggestion, is that it just isn't sufficient. You know, there was a There was a pastor, his name was John Wesley, also from the 1700s, and uh, him and his brother started what's known as as, uh, the Methodist movement, which became the Methodist church, and before that, though, before they became the Methodist church, it was known as the Wesley's Holy Club, and they had this holy club where they were deeply committed to a form of pietism. They were deeply committed to living holy lives. And they would get together and they would challenge each other with these intense questions at the end of the day. And I'll read some of them to you to understand the bar at which at least John Wesley understood it was to follow God. Listen to some of these. These are actual questions that John Wesley and his friends in this holiness club would ask to one another. Did I disobey God in anything today? Did I insist upon doing something about which my conscience is uneasy? Am I defeated in any part of my life? Am I jealous, impure, critical, irritable, touchy, or distrustful? How do I spend my spare time? Am I proud? Do I thank God that I'm not as other people, especially as the Pharisees who despise the publican? Is there anyone that I fear, dislike, disown, criticize, hold a resentment toward, or disregard? Do I grumble or complain ever? I'm just going to stop reading the list. Because the point is that none of us measure up to the standard of holiness. That isn't to say that we ought not pursue holiness and pursue God in that way, but to suggest that we could somehow atone for our own errors, our own mistakes, is simply foolish. Because just like the first, the rhetorical answer to both of Micah's proposals is no. A burnt offering is not sufficient. A sin offering is not sufficient because an infinite God requires all 
and because an absolutely holy God requires perfection. So point three, the solution. Verse eight. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Essentially what Micah does here is he looks back to what the Ten Commandments require of us, and he looks forward to what Jesus requires of us when he summarizes the law in Matthew 22. The Ten Commandments required of us that we be utterly devoted to God. Commandments one through four are all about our relationship to God. Have no gods before me, make no graven image. I am the Lord your God, I am your God, I am your God. And then the second half of the commandments are our relationship to fellow man. You could say the first are vertical, the second half are horizontal. Don't, lo- don't, uh, don't covet, don't murder, don't steal, don't lie. They're about loving God and loving neighbor. That's what Jesus says when he summarizes the law in Matthew 22. He says, Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. He's summarizing. What Micah says in the middle of the Bible is what God said in the beginning and is what God said in our Lord Jesus Christ. Loving God, justice, excuse me, walking humbly with God, and loving neighbor, doing justice, and loving kindness. Let me just spend a few minutes on this. Doing justice, or doing righteousness, as it were. In, um, in Old Testament thinking, in the Old Testament corpus of the scriptures, justice, or righteousness, or a righteous man, or a righteous woman, is one who ultimately cares for the most marginalized in society. In our scripture reading this morning in James 1, 12 through 18. Is that our scripture reading this morning? Yes. James 1, 12 to 18. We saw that caring for the widow and orphan would be in that category. And the same is true In the Old Testament mind, it was to be a righteous man or to do justice was to primarily to be concerned about the marginalized in society, the widow, the orphan, the poor. So we see in the Good Samaritan who cares for the one that can't care for himself on the side of the road. So what would that look like? What would that look like for us as a church? What would it look like for the gathering church to do justice, to care for the most poor and marginalized in our society. I'm going to read you an excerpt from a news article this week that's here in Portland, and it's about the foster care system, and it's about how the foster care system has been totally overrun. It says this. This is quoting a foster parent that was interviewed that did emergency foster care. It says, for us, over the last two years, over 35 kids have come through our home. Oftentimes, kids stay uh, with us for the night right after they've been taken into state custody until the Department of Human Services can figure out what to do next. 
the article goes on to say, it says a majority of these young people come in through late night phone calls because they've been moved from their home through a traumatic situation and a police officer or a caseworker simply knocks on our door and leaves them on our doorstep. Oftentimes, it's in the middle of the night. The article continues. As over the last two years, Oregon's foster care system has lost the equivalent of 400 beds in family homes and 100 beds in residential facilities. In 2015, DHS said they had an average of 7,500 children in state care. And DHS reported that on average, six foster children a week spend at least one night in a hotel because there are no homes or in a child welfare office. What would it look like for us as a church and as a people to do justice to the most marginalized in our society? I was praying this week over this application, and I was praying particularly this morning about this application. And I sensed that God wanted me to say this to you this morning. That there are some of you that are and have been considering foster care for a season. And you've been praying about it, and you've been considering it. And the sense that I got this morning for the Lord to tell you was, it's time to make the decision. It's time to move forward in a step of faith and to do justice to the most marginalized and poor in our society. I ask you to pray. I ask you to pray. If that's you, pray and hear from God yourself if that's what he would have you and your family do. How else do we care for the poor and most marginalized and do justice in our society? Many of you are aware of the refugee crisis that's been happening the last couple of years because of great turmoil and war in the Middle East. And how many tens of thousands of refugees have made their way to the United States and even Portland. We think we live in a very unique time in, the, in, in, in missions as Christians. I mean, historically, we've had, if we were going to reach the nations, which is the call in Acts chapter 2, to go to every tribe and tongue, every ethne, we would have to go long and far to do so. That's what we're sending John and Laura to India to do, to go reach an unreached people group. But the nations are coming to our backyard right now. They're coming to us. We don't have to cross continents and oceans as much. They're coming to our backyards. Those that are poor and needy of actual physical care and have the opportunity to share the great good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. What would it look like as a church if we pressed into that? We just pressed into the neighborhood where we meet. And we did justice and we did what was right and we cared for the most poor and marginalized around us. But you might be asking yourself, how does this make sense based on what I said in point two? If we can't approach God on our good deeds, we can't approach him through a burn offering, we can't approach him through a sin offering, then does it make sense that we can approach him because we did justice? No, it doesn't. You have to realize, 
the entire context of the Bible when you consider God's law being given to us. You see, the first time that we're given God's law, it's right after God's people had been called out of Egypt. God mercifully and graciously called and brought his people out of Egypt. He delivered them. He delivered them. And after he delivered them, then he gave them his law. He didn't say, obey the Ten Commandments, and when you get it right, I'll save you from Pharaoh. No. He absolutely, graciously brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and then said, because I've clearly shown myself to be your God, I've delivered you, I've been absolutely gracious to you, now I give you my commandments so that you might obey me as a means to enjoy me all the more. But isn't it striking to us that after God gives us the law, the very next thing he gives us is the tabernacle. He gives us the tabernacle and then the temple. Why would God do this? Because his mercy knows no bounds. He knew, he knew that when he gave us the Ten Commandments that we are still a weak and feeble people and would be constantly in need of his mercy. Atonement for sin. And that's exactly what Jesus does. When Jesus approaches people in the New Testament, for example, the rich young ruler He's constantly asking, what does the law require of you? What does the law require of you? And he's doing so as a means for them to see they don't live up to it. They simply don't live up to it. Which leads us to this last phrase, which says, and walking humbly with your God. To walk, walk humbly means at least two things, okay? To walk with someone means a closeness, To be journeying with someone means a friendship and a closeness, means that you know one another, which means that God actually knows who you are. God actually knows the kind of person you are inside of you. He knows your struggles, he knows your doubts, he knows your weaknesses, he knows your sins, he knows your failure. And it means another thing, it means to walk humbly with him. To walk humbly means to not walk in a position of pride, in a position of, I'm coming to you on the basis of this, of, of, of my good deeds and my good works, but it means I'm coming to you simply out of your sheer grace for me because you are the holy transcendent God that Micah describes in verse six. You are the God of Exodus 33 whose glory knows no bounds, whose beauty is magnificent and wonderful, and yet you walk with me. You walk with me out of sheer, utter grace towards me. We have one more clue into this. In verse 8, it says, love mercy. Love mercy. That word mercy there is the word chesed, which means steadfast love or loving kindness. And that word almost always is only used to talk about God's love towards us. His steadfast love never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. So when the text tells us to love that kind of mercy, the only way we can do it is if we've experienced it ourselves. We've experienced the steadfast love of the Lord. Walking with our God, humbly before him. He knows our frame. He knows our weakness. He knows what we're capable of, and yet he graciously walks with us and forgives us. And then, 
And only then will we understand what it actually is to do justice. Because to have a kind of loving mercy, a hesed kind of love towards people, means you had to experience it first, but it means learning to love the poor, the marginalized in society, when they don't love you back. When they don't deserve it. When they trample over our mercy. When they push it back in our face. And we can only do that. We can only live that kind of way. We can only love mercy like that when we've experienced it ourselves from the transcendent, holy God of the Bible. One last thing, and I'll close. Micah suggests to us that in his sin offering, he would bring forward to God his firstborn son. The firstborn son on who the entire future of the family was laid upon. And this image of firstborn son is throughout the Bible. In Exodus, Israel is called God's firstborn son. But when Jesus Christ comes on the scene in Matthew's gospel, it says Jesus Christ is the true son of God. He's the true firstborn son of God. Yesterday at the men's breakfast, we read Genesis 22, the story of Abraham taking Isaac up the mountain to sacrifice him. And when you get to about verse 12, the angel says, stay your hand, don't sacrifice the boy. And as he's coming down from the mountain, God says to Abraham, he says, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son for me. But when the true son, the true seed, Isaac represented the seed. The seed went to Israel. Matthew says Jesus is the true firstborn son of God. When Jesus Christ went to be crucified and murdered for our sake and on our behalf, there was no angel that appeared and said, stay thy hand. Because the son of God had to be crucified and murdered for our sake and on our behalf that we might live so that we can experience the true, steadfast love of the Lord. And when we see that, and when we embrace it, it ought to make us a people that humbly walk before God and do justice to those around us because we've experienced infinite love and grace for the one that really matters. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your mercy and your goodness towards us. We ask, God, that you would make us a church of people who and just relish in the steadfast love of the Lord and it would make us a people who overflow to do justice and to love mercy for those around us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So we come to the Lord's table this morning where we can tangibly experience his steadfast love for us. Uh, he was absolutely committed to us to the bitter end dying in our place for our sake. The table is open to uh, to all who've repented of their sins, put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, been baptized. If that describes you and you're a guest with us this morning, you're welcome to partake of the table with us. You can come up row by row, take the elements back to your seat, and one of the, uh, uh, Stephen Taylor, I think, will lead us in communion this morning.